This morning, what I want to talk to you about is the concept of entering God's rest. We, we live in a society that by and large, I think you would agree with me, it is a restless society. And by restless, I don't necessarily mean people are tired. I know people are tired, but that's not what I mean literally. What I mean by restless is morally restless. People are trying to find their way morally, ethically. Spiritually restless. People are trying to find their way spiritually. There's all kinds of views out there. The very fact that we have multiple religions on the planet is proof that people are restless spiritually. Because every other religion is humanity's attempt to figure out life's big questions. Is there a God? Religion says yes, but then it kicks in and it tries to answer, well, but how do we know Him? How do we follow Him? How are we right with God? So there's all this restlessness with people in society, spiritually, morally. And then I would say restlessness with purpose. You may have been in, in this point, but you know someone who probably is, that, that is restless with their purpose in life. Why are they here? What are they supposed to do with their existence? So there's all this restlessness out there, un, uncertainty. And I want to go a step further and then say, for us as Christians, we can be restless as well. And you could say, well, no, we've got it figured out as far as the stuff about God and how we know Him. And, and that may be true, but we can be restless as well. And what I mean by that is, we can forget the grace of Jesus Christ. And by forgetting the grace of Christ, I mean this. As Christians, we can say we are forgiven by God's grace. We can believe it. But when we live our lives and we fall into sin and we mess up, we can really dog ourselves. We can feel like God maybe is, hates us. God doesn't want anything to do with us anymore because we've messed up, even as a Christian. But that's not true. Christians, we should never be restless. We should always rest in God's grace. Now, that's not an excuse to sin. But it does mean when we do sin, God has never thrown us away or abandoned us. There's rest in God. And that's what I want to talk about this morning because where we're at in Hebrews now, he's going to talk about that, this idea of God's rest. In chapter 3, verse 7, all the way down to 4.13, that whole section is really one section. And it's all about this concept of entering God's rest. Entering God's rest. Resting in the Lord. And by rest, he's going to mean, again, not you're tired, He's going to mean the opposite of works, self-effort, self-salvation. If you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know the Pharisees. They were all about this idea of following the law. Now, Jesus said they did some good things, and he made a point to say your righteousness should exceed the Pharisees. And what he meant by that, I believe, was it wasn't that what they did was bad necessarily, but it was their heart. They thought that by doing those things, they were right with God. They missed the point. The point was faith. So the Pharisees were restless. They thought they should work harder to get right with God. And he's going to take this up here to say, no, no, no. God wants you to rest in Him. Spiritually rest. Rest in His grace. So the question for us this morning as we work through these would be this. Have I come to the place where I can say, I know I have entered God's rest. I am resting in the Lord. Now, we're not going to cover down to chapter 4, verse 13. We'd be here for hours. I won't do that to you. Uh, my dad would just get up and leave. That's fine. I'm his ride. But 
we're going to we're going to break this up. So this morning, we're just going to look at one part of God's rest and next Sunday, we'll finish it out. But here's the point this morning. He's going to talk about God's rest and he starts with a warning. And the warning is this. Don't miss it. Don't miss out on God's rest. Now, the next sermon, he'll pick up with more of the promise. Like, what does God give us in his rest? But this morning, it's simply this. Don't miss out on God's rest. Now, where we are in Hebrews, this letter again is all about explaining to us that Jesus Christ is greater, greater than the angels, greater than Moses. He's the fulfillment of everything that the Jews believed in the Old Testament. He fulfills it all. So his audience, we believe, I told you, we're not entirely sure who wrote it. There's theories. Some say Paul, some say Luke, some say Apollos, but we're not entirely sure. But we know it was a biblical writer here inspired by the Holy Spirit. And his audience was probably Christians who were Jews before they became Christians. They believed the Old Testament, believed the law, were following it, adhering to it. Maybe some were Pharisees, probably. And they've now come to faith in Christ. And their challenge in their mind is, do I still do all the Old Testament law stuff? Do I eat the way it says to eat and dress the way it says to dress? And just all of that stuff and still have my faith in Christ. And he's writing to them to try to clear that up and say, listen, you need to understand when you've come to faith in Christ, he fulfills all that for you on your behalf. You don't do that stuff anymore. It doesn't mean you ignore the law and the ethics, but what it does mean is you don't put your faith in what you can offer up to God for your salvation. You put your faith in Christ and what he's offered up to God for you on your behalf. Now, these the audience here probably had other issues, too. I believe he was writing to, like I said, Christians who had converted from Judaism. They might be facing pressure to go back to Judaism. you got to remember their society. If you were a Jew in their society, that was your life where you could shop. You might have had to be a Jew to shop there. Where you worshipped, you had to be a Jew to go to certain places. So imagine in that society, you now tell your friends and family, I'm no longer a Jew like you are. I've come to faith in Christ. I believe he's the Jewish Messiah and your family and friends don't believe you, well, now all of a sudden you're an outcast. You could literally be thrown out of, they'd call it thrown out of the synagogue. You could not go join in worship with your fellow friends and family. You, you, you could not go to certain places in society because you'd been cast out. Imagine the pressure these people are under to simply say, you know what, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean that about Jesus. I'm going to go back to the way things were. It would have been easier for them. So I think he's writing to encourage these people, don't give up on Jesus. He's far greater, far superior than anything you could put your faith and hope in. And that was sort of last sermon, consider Jesus. He's also writing to false converts. We have to acknowledge there's people that say with their mouth they believe in Jesus, but with the heart they never really have. So this is a mixed audience here, and he's writing to give these warnings. So all of that leads into the point today, don't miss God's rest. And that's what we're going to look at here. He's writing to this group to warn them, don't miss out on entering God's rest. If you would, please join me in standing out of respect for the reading of God's word. And I just want to read 7 through 11. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you that we can still in this country, this land, as immoral as it gets, we can still 
come and worship together publicly and openly, proclaiming who you are to us. Thank you for that privilege still. And Lord, may we still see it as a privilege, not a guaranteed right. We could lose it any moment. So thank you for that privilege. And would we now with our hearts and minds be in tune to hear truth from your word. And Holy Spirit, would you speak truth through this word, through this message, and help every heart and mind here in a way that it's impacted me studying this. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So the message, don't miss God's rest. So the first point here, the writer of Hebrews is going to bring up something to us, and I'm going to call this, this is the warning from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's going to give a warning about missing out on God's rest. If you look here at verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, we'll just stop there for a moment, that is loaded with truth. As the Holy Spirit says, this warning we're about to walk through this morning, we should see as no less as coming directly from God, the Holy Spirit. Yes, this author wrote this down, but yet he is saying, listen to the Holy Spirit. What I'm about to tell you comes directly from the Holy Spirit. Now, what's also even more interesting is verses 7 through 11 is a quote from Psalm chapter 95, verses 7 through 11. David, we believe, wrote Psalm 95, 7 through 11, King David of old. But yet the author here never mentions David's name. He bypasses David. He's not important and goes straight to the real author of Scripture. He says the Holy Spirit says, listen to him. Holy Spirit speaking through David. So he picks up on that and says this warning doesn't come from David. It doesn't come from a book called Psalm. It doesn't come from any other human person. He says it comes from the Holy Spirit. That means then for us, a side note, the Bible is ultimately a book authored by God through God's Holy Spirit. Yes, he used human authors to pen it, but it comes through God, the Holy Spirit himself. This is a divine book. And here he's just simply saying, make no mistake about it, the Holy Spirit is speaking through these words on this page this morning. So in this warning, again, see it no less as coming directly from the Holy Spirit himself. Now look at the word says. That's interesting too, before we move on. The Holy Spirit says. The word says is in the present tense, meaning today, the present tense. See, it'd be one thing if he said, the Holy Spirit said, past tense, way back when through the mouth of David in Psalm 95, he said 2,000 years ago, and then he quotes it. And he would be grammatically accurate if he were to have said, the Holy Spirit said in the past. That's not what he says. He uses the word says, present, today. Just to point out once again, I think he's being intentional to say, number one, this is the Holy Spirit warning us today and make no mistake about it, the Holy Spirit still speaks today. He warns today in the present. So as we read this, I believe that he's trying to draw our attention immediately out the gate to say, this is from the mind of the Holy Spirit, and secondly, he still speaks today. When we read the Bible, it is speaking to us. I'm not saying you'll hear some audible voice. Maybe you do, I don't. But when I read the Bible, when you read the Bible, we should see it as no less as God is speaking to us presently today from these words on this page. So again, these are not just words on paper. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to us, warning us, guiding us for what we need today. We still serve a God who speaks. He speaks through his word. So he's going to then introduce to us here from the Holy Spirit a warning. The warning is this. Don't harden your heart. 
So that's the warning. So think of it like this. The warning, the big picture warning is don't miss out on God's rest. And I'll explain that a little more later about God's rest, but don't miss out on it. Well, then the question becomes, how can I miss out on God's rest? What do you mean? Well, his first point then is the Holy Spirit's going to give a warning. Don't harden your heart. That's how you can miss out. So if you look here with me at this again in the verses, he says in quoting Psalm chapter 95, and I'd like to just read that to you. So if you want to flip to or listen, I'm going to go to Psalm chapter 95 where he quotes this from. This psalm starts out with praise. He says, O come, let us sing to the Lord and make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. And in his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his. He made it and formed the, his, his hands formed the dry land. So it's a song of, of launching into worship because God's this great creator who's created everything just with a thought, with his hands. Verse 6, now he calls for worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Now, verse 7 is where this is going to pick up. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So here comes the charge. Today, if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to, pro to the proof, though they had seen my work. Verse 10 of Psalm 95, I'm reading here, for 40 years I loathed that generation. So it's, it's interesting because it's as if David is writing, but then somewhere along the way in verse 7 and 8, it switches to speaking as if God is talking directly in the first person. Because look back with me here, he says, Today if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts. But then in verse 9, it switched to says, When your fathers put me to the test. Me is God. Now the fathers are the Jewish ancestors. That first generation of Jews that left Egypt. If you remember the plagues in Exodus, and God delivered Israel out of slavery. That generation is what he's talking about here. And God is speaking through David saying, those fathers there, your ancestors, your fathers, they tested me and not in a good way. They tried my patience, he's saying. And he mentions a specific instance. And a specific instance is here found in Exodus 17. I apologize, but that's why we're jumping around. So I want to read that to you. In Exodus chapter 17 here, here's the actual story of what happened. Israel has been delivered mightily through, from God through Moses. You may remember the plagues, you know, the, the locust, the Nile to blood, all these plagues. I don't even remember them all, to be honest. But there was several of them, and you get, I think, to the 12th plague, and it was the big one, the Passover plague, where if you didn't sprinkle the blood of the innocent lamb on your doorpost, the death angel come in and killed the firstborn. And after that, only then did Pharaoh agree to let them go. But he still chased them down. God wiped them out. Well, Israel's in this wilderness, and God kept promising them, I will take you to the promised land. A physical land, a geographical area, and God would mention this term of rest. You will have rest, physical rest even. Rest from enemies. I'll be your God. You'll be my, my people. I'll bless you so much other nations come running to you wanting to know what God do you serve? We have to know him. That was the promise. But here in this story in Exodus 17, something happened. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. 
but there was no water for the people to drink. You have to imagine Moses. He's leading, some scholars estimate, over one million people on foot in caravans across a desert wilderness by fire at night and a cloud by day. And God said, just trust me. I'll rain bread from heaven. I'll make quail come down. You can catch them and eat the meat and I'll provide water. But Israel, if you read their story, they would have these periods where they thought, well, where's God? We're thirsty and he hasn't told us we're getting water yet. So they'd start to doubt and complain. Well, here's one of these stories. So they they start to, it says in verse two, they quarreled or they argued, they grumbled, they complained against Moses. And they said to Moses, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you argue with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses knew what they were doing was from a place of doubt. They're putting God to the test. Again, a doubtful test. But what we go on, verse 3. The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Again, they're not asking God politely is the point here. They're not saying, God, we're thirsty. It'd be one thing if they said, God, we're thirsty. We know you'll provide because you've done it before. We trust you, God. But we're asking, would you please provide water? That'd be one thing. And that wouldn't have been bad if they asked God from a place of trust. But that's not what they're doing. They're complaining from a place of doubt. So that's the issue. Verse 4, Moses cries out to God. Now now he's upset and he basically says to God in verse 4, what will I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So we have to read in the words here, this was a serious argument they're having with Moses. Moses is going to God worried, they're about to kill me, God. They're so upset with you. They're so upset with me. They're convinced that you've brought them into the desert just to let them die of thirst. So again, Israel's just in a place of severe doubt, disbelief. So here's God's answer. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You will strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massa. Massa in Hebrew meant testing or trial. So it was a symbolic name to say, you guys at this location put God to the test and it wasn't good. He gave it a second name, Meribah. That means argument or quarrel. So this was not a good thing for Israel. God provided, but it showed very badly on the people. So it says here, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying the Lord um, is the Lord among us or not? So I want to drive that home again because that's going to in- interpret Hebrews for us this morning. Israel's problem was not that they asked God for water. That's not the issue. The problem was they doubted that God would provide for them. They thought God had brought them out of Egypt just to kill them off in the desert. That was their issue. Doubt, unbelief, questioning God's good nature, questioning God's character. So back now in Hebrews chapter 3, so that's the context for what he picks up, and he's using that story here in verses 7 through 11 to quote Psalm 95. And we'll, we'll go on here now. So the Holy Spirit's warning, don't harden your heart. And he says here, that's exactly what Israel did. So listen to the warning from Israel here. By hardening of the heart, this word means your heart is stubborn. You're unyielding. You won't listen to anything or anyone. You won't take corrective advice. 
you're told something new or told other truth and you refuse to believe it. You're just stubborn in your heart. The heart in the New Testament, at least that I couldn't find in my studies, it never means the physical organ that pumps blood. So when you read heart in the New Testament, it's not talking about your heart inside your chest. It's talking metaphorically, spiritually. The idea of the heart is your inner self, your being, your thoughts, your emotions, your your spiritual side of you. So here he's saying don't harden your heart. An example would be when someone may say to you, you have a warm heart or you have a cold heart. They don't mean that they've actually felt the temperature of your heart. That's not what they're saying. They mean your attitude, your character. You're either a very kind, warm, nice person or you're a very cold person that doesn't care about others. You're cold-hearted or or warm-hearted. He's using that idea here to say don't harden your heart. Don't harden your yourself, your spiritual side of you. Don't close yourself off to something here. So what is he getting at? Well, he's going to be saying here to us, this is the danger of missing God's rest. Is you turn away from being humble and you harden yourself to God's truth. So anytime, this is the, the point here, anytime we hear God's message, Christian or not, we have a choice to either harden our heart to that truth and reject it and say, I'll have nothing to do with it. I know better or it just doesn't make sense to me, so I don't want it. Or the other choice is to humble our hearts and say, yes, I need to believe that. I need to put my trust in that. Harden or humble. Israel hardened their hearts. That's his point. He's using their story to say to us, don't harden your heart like Israel hardened their heart. I believe the writer of Hebrews would say something like this for us today in 2022. God is calling out to people still to this day. And did we not say the Holy Spirit speaks today? Yes. God is calling out to lost people. We'll we'll talk about lost people and Christians. God is calling out to this day and will continue to non-Christians all over the world. He calls out to them with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe for salvation. Repent and believe and put your faith in Christ as your payment, your substitute sacrifice for your sins on your behalf, and you'll be right with God. It's by faith. It's by grace. That is the call of God. The message goes out. Every time that message is put out there, it requires a response. You cannot hear the gospel and say, I'm undecided. That There's no such thing. A decision to not accept the gospel is a decision to reject it. There is no middle ground with God. You've either accepted it or rejected it. And by saying, I'm not sure, don't know yet, that is rejection. No middle ground. God puts that call out there to every person that's hearing. They either hear a preacher, they hear a friend. Maybe it's a radio message. Maybe they read it in a book. They go to a hotel and see a Gideon Bible. Somehow, some way, they're getting that message. The call of God is going out. And they have a choice to humble the heart and accept it and receive it or harden the heart and reject it and say, I'll have nothing to do with it. So God is calling out also to Christians. I believe God is calling out to us every time we read his word, the Bible. When you hear a sermon, when you sit in a Sunday school class and you're hearing a lesson, you're being taught anytime you and I are being poured into from God's word in some medium That is a type of God calling out to you, even as a Christian. Not the call of the gospel always, but it is a call to faithfulness, a call to service, a call to grow as a disciple and child of God. There's a call that goes out even to the Christian there. Again, I would stress we must respond. So right now in this moment, we could say, 
this, this message going out. Or we could back up and talk about Bruce's leading us in worship. That is a type of a call that you could either ignore the songs or you could, you could mouth the words even and from the heart it didn't mean anything. Or you could say, in truth, I will worship the Lord through this, this music and these songs. There's a choice, humble or hardened. You could hear a sermon, a lesson, and again, even as a Christian, there's a choice. Will I humble, receive this truth, or harden and say, this, I'll not have this today. It's not for me today. There's always a choice, always a call from God going out. That is the Holy Spirit's warning to each of us. Christian or not, don't harden your heart. God is actively calling out to us, either with salvation or for greater discipleship, greater service to grow us. And our choice is to humble or harden the heart. We have a choice anytime we hear God's message. Now, this original audience that he's writing to, I I said earlier, I believe they had several challenges. Some of these were Jewish Christians that could have been struggling to live by faith and not by works. They were tempted to go back to that old way of Jewish living like the Pharisees and put all their faith in their self-effort, their works. But he's writing for them to say, no, 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 don't, don't go to that. You live by faith. That's God's rest. Some of these Jewish Christians were probably persecuted and felt pressure to abandon their faith in Christ and live the easy life the way it was. And again, he's reminding them, no, don't do that. Now, another group I want to point out again, I've already said this several times, but it needs to keep me pointing out. There are some people in this group that identify outwardly with their mouth. They identify as a Christian, but in their heart, they've never truly been born again. They've never truly put their faith in Jesus. They're a false Christian. And maybe they've fooled themselves too. And that's why he keeps warning, guard your heart, check your heart, hold on to your faith. Make sure you're really in the faith. Whatever their situation was that he was writing to to these people, the warning from the Holy Spirit is clear to them and to us today. Do not harden your heart and abandon your faith in Christ. Make sure you are staying true to God through your faith in Christ. So that's the warning. Don't harden your heart or you'll miss God's rest. Israel missed, that generation missed. He says there in verse 11, God said he swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. Now, in this context, the rest is the promised land. And I won't read this to you for time, but if we were to flip to, to Numbers chapter 14, you would read that section there. You can see it later for yourself. But Numbers 14, starting verse 20, God says this through Moses, that that generation, now not all of Israel, but that specific generation that left Egypt and had doubt and unbelief They died off in the wilderness. They wandered for 40 years until they all died off. It was their children and their grandchildren that got to go into the promised land. So his point again for us is don't miss God's rest. Don't miss God's rest. So what's the remedy though? How do I not miss out on God's rest? So the warning is don't harden your heart. That's the challenge for each of us to close ourselves off from hearing God's truth. And have a hard heart, a stubborn heart. Well, how do we remedy this? Look at verse 12 now. So he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I see in this passage he gives us three remedies to make sure we don't have a hardened heart and close ourselves off from God's truth. Again, this applies to a lost person closing themselves off from salvation. 
It applies to us as Christians too, closing ourselves off from greater faithfulness, greater, greater service, greater discipleship for the Lord. So what's the remedy he gives? The first point is, well, guard your heart. Well, what do we look for when we're guarding our heart? Remember, heart's not the organ, it's our inner self. It's the spiritual part of us, our character, our emotions, our nature. Guard that, he says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. So take care. The word take care is a command verb. So this is our part. This is what we're supposed to do. We're to take care for something here. Take care means pay very close attention to something. So he would be saying this in modern speak. You need to pay very close attention as a Christian, how the condition of your heart is. Is it faithful to the Lord? And you may say, yes, it's faithful. Well, is it continuing to grow in service to the Lord? Are you being faithful today as a child of God? So take care, guard your heart, pay very close attention to the heart. What's the challenge? He says, well, you need to make sure that you don't have, he calls it an evil heart. An evil heart means just what it says, a morally corrupt, bad heart. A heart that's wicked, a heart that's perverted, a heart that's just evil. And then he says unbelieving. So an evil heart, morally corrupt, bad heart, an unbelieving heart. That is where we get our English word, you may have heard, apostate. Someone who's an apostate, we use that term to mean they once claimed they were a Christian, they identified with Jesus, but at some point later in their life, they walk away from it all and they say, I'm no longer in Christ, I, I don't want anything to do with the church, nothing to do with Jesus anymore. We call that an apostate they abandoned, if you will, the faith. They walked away from it. That's where this word comes from, by this word unbelieving heart. So he's saying don't have an apostate heart. Well, what's an apostate heart? An unbelieving heart would mean you refuse to accept and believe and follow the truth. The key word is refuse. It's where you come to a point where you say, I am willfully on my own free will saying I no longer accept this. I don't want anything to do with it. It's a refusal. It's not an accident is the point I'm saying. It's not that you one day have a believing heart and then you wake up and you just without your knowledge all of a sudden have an unbelieving heart. That's not how this happens. That's not the warning here. He's saying guard your heart because you could have, it could be possible that someone reading this or someone hearing this has today presently an unbelieving heart. He says because if you don't guard your heart, you might find out that you tricked yourself. You thought you were in Christ, but you're not. And you really all along had an evil, unbelieving heart. And what's the, the downfall of this? He says, it will lead you to fall away from the living God. Fall away means you gave up on a former relationship that you once had. And I like that definition because we see that, unfortunately, even to this day. People who were faithful in the church said they were faithful to Christ, said they loved Jesus, but at a point in their future, they just give up on it. What happened to those people? I've mentioned this last sermon, so I won't belabor this again, but I do want to point this out for us all again. I do not believe the Bible teaches you can lose real salvation in Jesus. You, you don't get saved. You don't get born again. The Bible uses terminology that when you come to faith in Christ, you're given a new heart, a new birth by the Holy Spirit. You're not born again and then unborn again. That's not possible. However, there is a warning, a warning we should not miss. While I believe in what our denomination calls eternal security, you may have heard the phrase once saved, always saved. Yes, I believe the Bible teaches that. However, there is still a warning nonetheless. The warning is, is this. While you can't lose your salvation, we must always be checking our salvation. 
What I mean is checking to make sure the faith we claim that we've always had for however many years is legitimate. Always checking. Have I really come to faith in Christ? Why should we do this? Well, if you fall away, if someone out there you may know falls away from faith in Christ, they say they don't believe it anymore. What does that mean? Were they saved and then all of a sudden they're not saved? That's not what's happening. What he's saying here about this evil, unbelieving heart is they didn't develop that after they had a believing heart. The point is they never had a believing heart to begin with. Their heart was always an unbelieving heart. Even if with their mouth they were saying good Christian things, I believe in Jesus, but with their heart they never believed. They said it. Unfortunately, I want to stress again, I think people can even trick themselves. They can think because maybe a a pastor steered them wrongly. Maybe they're part of a different cult type group that claims Jesus, but they believe weird different things about Jesus, but they think it's the truth. They can believe that they're believing the right things about Jesus, but then they're really not. They're not resting in God's grace. And I think that's why he has these warnings, not that you can lose salvation, but that you and I need to always be checking to make sure we are really in the faith, that we've really come to faith in Christ. So if a person falls away, they one day say, I no longer believe this anymore. The writer of Hebrews, I believe, would say, well, what that just simply means is they never had a good believing heart. They always had an unbelieving heart. People who once professed Jesus but eventually abandoned him and walk away prove that they never truly belonged to Jesus in the first place. That's the idea, I believe. Now, I do want to point out, I believe there could be real Christians that have a season where they struggle. Backslide, some call it. I can only tell you very quickly, but my own college experience, I had severe challenges in my faith. I would have professors just telling me how the Bible had mistakes, it had errors. I'd have professors tell me, you have no proof for God because you can't see him, you can't hear him, so how do you know he exists? You have no proof that this man Jesus actually rose again, so how can you believe that stuff? And that challenged me. And I had to, for about three years, really nail down, drill down, and find the answers. Now from that experience, and I'm I'm not bragging when I share this because it's all the grace of God when I look back. Because God put good people in my life that kept me grounded. But looking back, you there was a sort of a fork there. I could have went one way and went deeper into disbelief to the point one day I say I completely renounce my Christian faith. I'm done with it all. I don't believe it anymore. Well, what does that mean? That could mean I never really had a believing heart to begin with. I grew up in the home of a pastor, so one could say, well, of course you said believe in Jesus. You were raised that way. But then when I become an adult and I'm on my own, I think more and I say, you know what, I'm I'm done with it. That could mean that I never really was saved to begin with. It could mean that I really am, but I'm going through a season of doubt and one at a moment in time, God will grow me through that. And I can tell you looking back, that's what God was doing with me. It was a season of doubt. I really had a true faithful heart, but I was being tested. I was being challenged. And through that experience, God grew me. But there are others that go through things like that and they don't come out with growth. They abandon the faith. I think that's the writer's point. You either already have a believing heart and when the test comes, you might have seasons of sin or doubt, but you will come out faithful and stronger. But if you don't, the person doesn't, then they have no assurance that they ever really were saved to begin with. So that's the remedy. Guard your heart, though. Check your heart, even as a Christian. Is my faith real? 
Am I truly standing in the grace of God today? Now, the next remedy, he says, exhort one another. So if you look at verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort one another, um, your translation may say encourage. The word literally means that you need help and you call your buddy over to your side and they're walking side by side with you. It could mean physically kind of lifting you up, like maybe your leg's injured and you call them over to help prop you up and they're carrying you along. It's that kind of a, a word where you're getting direct support from someone else. So here he says, look, we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. We have something we should do for one another. We should be calling each other to our side saying, I need you and you need me. We need each other to encourage one another to keep us strong in our faith. The, you may have heard the phrase brother's keeper. Now, this is very difficult for us as Americans because we're very private people. I don't always appreciate if someone comes to me and says, hey, I think you're doing this wrong in your life. That's hurtful. We don't always like that. We might get offended. But the fact is the New Testament does teach, and he's teaching it here, one of the ways to stay strong in your faith is we need the family of God coming alongside us, spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking, saying, brother or sister, how are you doing in the Lord? How is your prayer life? How is your Bible study life? What are you struggling with? How can I pray for you? And then if you have a struggle, having the confidence to go to a trusted brother or sister and say, I need support right now. His point here for us is we need each other. We need to be encouraging and exhorting one another in the faith. Why? Because he says it could be that one of us one day sitting here today, unfortunately, maybe 10 years from now, someone in this church all of a sudden says, I don't have anything to do with Jesus anymore. Maybe you see someone out at the gas station or the store and say, well, I haven't seen you in church in months. Well, I don't believe that anymore. Or I just don't, you know, whatever, whatever they may tell you. The question would be, well, what happened? It's not that it's our fault directly, but it is that if we were caring for one another more, we could have caught that early on and helped that brother or sister along in their faith. I believe that's his point. The remedy to not missing God's rest, again, guard your heart personally. And yes, help each other in the faith. Help each other along as we grow in the family of God. Because he says we could be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He, I like how he calls sin deceitful. It means it's a trick. All sin is ultimately a trick. Even sins that we know are wrong, but we choose to do them anyways, in a way we were still tricked. We're tricked because we tell ourselves, we trick ourselves into thinking that that sin is the best thing for us to do in that moment. And so we do it. That's a type of trick. We play it on ourselves. He says, listen, we're here to help each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord to, again, not to be, it's as hard as Americans, we're very private, but there is a sense to say, hey, are you struggling with this or that? Or, hey, I'm struggling with this or that, and I need your support, I need your prayers, I need brothers and sisters to help me along. The final remedy, he says, hold on to your faith. He's already said this before in previous sermons, but he says it again in verse 14, for we have all come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So hold on to your faith in Jesus, firm to the end. These are the three remedies then. Guard your heart, be checking your heart. Are you really in the faith? Are you really growing in the faith? Exhort, encourage one another. Be a part of the family of God, be involved in it. You know, that's, that's why this has come up before. This is a side note. But this has come up for years that I've been in ministry, and any minister could tell you this that's done it for years and years, and it got worse after the pandemic. But people just don't come back to church anymore. Like, why aren't they here? 
I can tell you this is one of the reasons, because if you're if we're sheep and the Bible calls us sheep and then one sheep strays away from the flock and they're out there on their own because they just don't want to be part of the flock. They don't just care to be there anymore. They think they're fine on their own. Well, what is the wolf likely to go for? The flock of 99 or the one that's out there on its own? That's the easy target. The writer of Hebrews here is saying, you want to know why church is important, like actually gathering, because we're a family and families need to gather and grow together. They're be there for one another. You can't do that if you're only online. You can't do that if you, you, you never join with the family of God. But as we join, we must make no mistake about it. We need each other, encourage each other in the faith. So verse 14 can be true about us. So we're holding on to our faith in Jesus because life gets hard. There's temptations to abandon, but he says we need each other. Hold on to our faith. Those are the remedies to not miss out on God's rest. I want to mention the final point in verse 15 then. This is the real problem he's going to come back to. The real problem is this. It's unbelief. In verse 15, he's going to pick up again and say, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Talking about Israel again, but applying it to us. Don't harden your heart when you hear the call of God. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So he's mentioning that story again. Verse 17, And with whom was God provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So he asks these rhetorical questions. He goes back to Israel and say, Heed the warning of Israel. Israel, the first generation, they missed the promised land. They missed God's rest. How did they miss it? They hardened their hearts and it led to outright unbelief. They doubted God's character. They doubted God's goodness. They doubted that God had their best interest in heart. They grumbled. They complained. And finally, God got to a point where he said, you know what? Enough. Now, I believe I want to step aside here and say, I believe my opinion. There is debate. Well, were those Israelites saved? I believe they were. I believe they were. But the issue is they missed out on the earthly rest that God had promised them. They missed it. Now, I believe here his point for us then is even as a Christian, are we saved? Sure, we're saved. But if we're not faithful in our walk with the Lord, if, if we don't serve and grow like we're supposed to and stay true to the Lord, we can miss out in this life. We can miss out on fuller service to the Lord. We can miss out on greater blessings from the Lord a type of earthly rest, if you will. Now, I don't think we lose salvation, like I said, but we can miss out on things in this life like Israel did. They didn't get to go to the promised land. Some did later, you know, but not these guys. That's his point. He says, listen, they doubted and they lost that earthly promise, that earthly re reward from the Lord. So verse 18, to whom did he swear they shall not enter my rest, but those who were disobedient. So the final charge is in verse 19. So he says, let me sum it all up. And here's the lesson then. So we see that they, Israel there, were unable to enter, meaning enter God's rest, because of unbelief. The real danger in everything we're saying, how can I miss God's rest, is if you have an unbelieving heart. Now, by rest, I want to make that clear. He is saying to not work. Rest is the opposite of work. You say, well, duh, we know that. But think about this. The word rest in the Greek means not that you're sleeping. 
The word rest here, as it's used, means you were working and you ceased your work, you ceased your activity. Now you have rest. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, we can rest in Jesus. That's his point. You and I should not, and there's nothing we can do to work to be right with God. You can't pray enough. You can't do enough good, give enough to charities. I can't, you can't, we cannot work to God. It's impossible. But the Jews thought they could by keeping the law. The law was never meant for them to earn salvation. It was meant to show them they need God's grace. They were supposed to look at the law, all those hundreds and hundreds of laws, how to eat, how to dress, and they were supposed to say, I can't do this. And that was the point. They were supposed to sit back and say, I can't do this. God, you have to do it for me. You have to save me. That's the same way with Jesus. It's us looking to Jesus saying, God, I can't save myself. I can't die for my own sins. I can't save myself. Jesus, you have to do it for me. When you do that by faith, that is entering God's rest. And that's his point here for these readers. Don't miss God's rest. Don't miss salvation. Don't miss how to be right with God. Don't miss out on your true purpose in life by being a child of God. Enter God's rest. How do you do that? By faith. Faith, not unbelief. As a Christian, though, again, there's still a lesson here. We can still, as Christians, not feel God's rest. I think as a child of God, it's easy for us to slip into sins, and that's wrong. We should not sin, so this is not an excuse to sin. But at the same time, we can slip into sins and think, have I messed up too much and now God hates me? Or now Jesus doesn't love me. I'm not one of his, his followers anymore. That's not how God works. God says, what you did is wrong. Don't sin. But there's rest in God's grace. There's always forgiveness. There's always grace. I love the story of the woman caught in adultery. If you remember that story, they caught a woman, it says, in the very act of adultery. By Jewish law, she could have been stoned. They bring her before Jesus, and Jesus condemns, not really condemns, but really comes down on the people, the audience. He says, who's here without sin? Throw the first stone. None of them throw a stone. They all walk away. The woman's left there alone. The crowd was not true about caring that God's law was upheld. That wasn't the point of why they brought the woman. They were trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus knew that. So he sends the crowd away because they're guilty as well. They're being hypocrites. But if you read that story, he says something to the woman, very simple but powerful. He says, is anyone here left to condemn you? She says, no. He says, neither do I condemn you. So that's the one thing. Jesus didn't condemn her. But the second thing is important too. He said, go and sin no more. He still told the woman, what you did is wrong. Don't go and sin anymore. But there's grace. There's rest in God's forgiveness, even when we do sin. So again, my question would be to each of us, have you entered God's rest through faith in Jesus Christ? If yes, then are you actively resting every day in that grace? Even when we sin, yes, we shouldn't again, but when we do, do you come back to God and say, God, this was wrong, I repent, but I trust in your rest. I'm not having to work for it. Jesus has done it for me. And when we keep going through this in our next lessons, we'll see more of how Jesus has secured that rest for us. I'm going to ask Bruce and his people to come. I just want to explain, I don't really stand at front and and do a formal invitation, but I do want to make the point clear. I'm always here, and as they do this song, I just want you to think, if, if you're here today, my challenge to you is to, like he said, check your heart. If you're really in the faith, then great. But pray that God would help you 
repent and overcome from those sins that we don't really get rid of in our lives that keep us, hold us back from having a more believing heart. If you think maybe I'm really not in the faith, I thought I was, but I'm not, then today, get that today. As he said today, as the Holy Spirit speaks, because there may not be another today for someone to hear the Holy Spirit speak. 